Welcome to Doha Debates, where we explore an issue from various sides and try to find common ground. Get ready for a conversation that's well-informed, spirited, civil, and respectful. Hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, and I will be your moderator for this debate. And today we're talking about war, peace, and the United Nations. It was founded after two world wars in the hopes of establishing international peace and security. Back in 1945, 51 countries signed the UN Charter. That document begins with a commitment to, quote, save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, unquote. It's highly aspirational. How well has it worked out? Is the UN still capable of preventing war and keeping peace? Back in 2022, after Russia invaded Ukraine, the UN Security Council called an emergency meeting. The council has 15 member countries, including the US, Russia, and China. Its purpose is to maintain international peace and security. At that emergency meeting, the member countries debated Russia's claim to Ukrainian territory, humanitarian access to invaded areas, and which international laws had been broken. In the end, the UN Security Council rejected a draft resolution intended to end Russia's offensive against Ukraine. The Security Council discussed the war in Ukraine 23 more times after that, without approving a resolution about it. In September, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky chastised the group. President Zelensky said, quote, inequality of states renders the UN ineffective, unquote. He also called the Security Council, quote, the most broken institution in the world. In October 2023, the council came under more scrutiny after Israel went to war in Gaza. The issue here was the group's inability to ease the violence. So what can the UN Security Council really do in times of crisis? How useful is it as a means of keeping the peace? We've invited two experts on the United Nations to come debate these questions. Joining us from London is Natalie Samara Singha. She is the Global Advocacy Director at the Open Society Foundations. Natalie, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks. Nice to join you. Also with us is Anjali Dayal, a political scientist at Fordham University. She is the author of Incredible Commitments, How UN Peacekeeping Failures Shape Peace Processes. She joins us from Washington. Professor Dayal, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. We'll have a question from a global listener a little bit later on in the debate. But before we begin, I have two ground rules. First, no personal attacks. We are here to pick apart the issue and not each other. And second, every question needs a direct answer. It's fine to think out loud, of course. And I don't know is always a perfectly legitimate answer. But please don't pivot to another topic until you've answered the question at hand. And please, my very biggest pet peeve, Please don't answer a question with a question. Natalie, let me start with you. You used to lead the UN Association, which is a group that celebrates the UN's contribution to the world. What are some of the ways, in your view, that the UN has proven its ability to at least help keep the peace? Well, it's, I have to say that job at the UN Association, it was in many ways a really hard gig because of the comments that you, you made in your introduction we see the Security Council unable to make progress on so many issues. We see conflicts raging around the world. But I think there are three things I would point your listeners to. One, the UN is and remains a lifeline for people affected by conflict. Millions of people rely on the UN for protection, for shelter, and other basic needs. 
UN peacekeepers go where you know others will not and, and cannot. And in many situations, the UN is really the only lifeline. You mentioned two conflicts that dominate the headlines. Many conflicts do not. So where there is less interest by the public, by big powers, that is one of the crucial spaces where the UN is able to act. You have mediation by senior officials. You have the humanitarian responses of its agencies. You have its efforts to prevent chemical weapons and nuclear weapons and control other forms of arms. You have efforts to build peace through social justice and development. You even have its efforts to address the existential challenge of climate change, which is already driving conflicts and will do so much more in the future. The second point I think I, I, I used to make is that there is a tendency to romanticize that moment you, you spoke about when the UN was founded as this sort of moment of unity and idealism after the Second World War. I think that that is a powerful story that inspires people, but the reality is somewhat different. The UN was founded when the war was still raging. It is a wartime alliance that became something different. And the sort of structural design flaws that Vladimir Zelensky referred to, they're not accidental, they're deliberate. They're based on the sort of political calculation. Hey, if we give special privileges to the, the most powerful through permanent seats in the Security Council and veto powers, then we have a better chance of keeping them on side and giving them an interest in upholding you know, that system. And I think the final point I really would make is what else do we have? It sounds a little bit hollow, but when you really think about it, what are the alternatives? You have the G20, now the G21, but even with the um, recent addition of the African Union, it's not a universal space. A lot of countries aren't there. So it cannot be you know, a global forum like the General Assembly. It doesn't have the mandate that the Security Council does to look after matters of peace and security. And however frustrated we are with the Council, I think part of that frustration comes from the fact that we still believe it has that mandate. And you look at regional organizations, the African Union, I mentioned, the European Union. I mean, that really doesn't exist in other parts of the world. So when it comes down to it, we're kind of stuck with the UN and we need to try and make it as effective as possible, bearing all of that in mind. Anjali, you've written that the UN has structural flaws that prevent it from adequately preventing war. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, that the UN is built in basically in the shadow of two big fears. And those fears are the fear of a third world war and the fear of the two big powers in the world at the time of the UN's founding walking away from the UN system. So the US and the USSR. And the fundamental flaw in the UN's ability to maintain international peace and security is related to both those fears. The UN Security Council maintains international peace and security in the world. It's the entity that decides what force is and isn't legitimate. It's the entity that decides what problems and what conflicts in the world get the full complement of multilateral intervention, which people get protection from the international community. But in order to keep the great powers of the day invested, they each got a veto. So the UK, the US, Russia, China, and France, they get to put their thumb on the scale of international peace and security and decide what is and isn't legitimate aggression and what people do and don't get protection. And today we actually have the same problem, which is that the Security Council is working exactly as it's supposed to work. It is working because the great powers of the day sit down and they get to decide what is and isn't legitimate 
uh, violence, what is and isn't legitimate conflict, and who gets protection. But the cost of that to everybody else is that some people don't get the protection of the international community. Some people don't get the full suite of multilateral involvement. The system is specifically built to allow the big powers of the 20th century and today to protect and exonerate their allies, to engage in proxy wars without any kind of real retaliation. And so this fundamentally broken system is paradoxically actually working as it's intended to work. And it will only change when these five permanent members want it to change. When they sit down and they say, we, we have to revise the international compact that we have because the stakes are too big. If I could zoom out just a little bit, Natalie, you wrote an op-ed for Pass Blue that said that focusing on the Security Council is reductionism, as you put it. Elaborate on that a little bit. Is there more that we should be seeing as we try to answer these questions besides just the Security Council? I think people spend a lot of time focusing on the council and the words, you know, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, people, including in my world, we see the Security Council adopting a text as the endpoint. I mean, it really isn't. It's, it's, it's just a framework. You have to implement it and so on. I think it would be much better if we looked at what does the UN system, and not just the UN, what do other institutions contribute to the maintenance of peace and security? You have the preventative aspect of development agencies. You have the responsive aspect of humanitarian agencies. You have the powers of the General Assembly, which is a much more legitimate body that can do lots of things that the council can do on sanctions, on peacekeeping. And so a lot of the innovation in the UN system comes from there. You have the role of the Secretary General, of other senior officials. So I think by over-focusing on the council, we're not really thinking through what is this kind of life cycle of crisis? How does it start? How do you prevent it? How do you get from management you know, and crisis response to peace building? And that, I think, is a huge blind spot sometimes when we have these debates. We always end up talking about the Security Council, even though I still think that there is a, a purpose for the Security Council. And I don't think it's a small purpose. I think that the purpose is you have channels of communication that you may not otherwise have. You have these big powers that are forced to sit down around a table and talk about issues and rub shoulders every day. And that does rub off. I mean, states, governments are made up of people, decision makers are people. So I think there is a value in that convening power. Let me zoom in on that a little bit, Anjali, because I, I, I hear the point that Natalie's trying to make, that there are other tools within the United Nations that also have efficacy that can create an environment where nations have just another set of options. You look at the current Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, he's not shy about using his bully pulpit. He's been very outspoken about Ukraine and climate change and the impact of children in conflict zones. I might not even be aware of how many children are caught up in conflict zones or deadly situations around the world unless Secretary General Guterres put out an annual report about it. Is it perhaps that there's a structural issue or is it an implementation issue? Is the issue that the tools are there, but maybe some of the people who have been at the UN could just use them more effectively? This is actually a fundamental problem of international law and international organizations in general, which is that all participation is fundamentally voluntary. All obligations are voluntarily adopted. 
And so, you know, when we think about why things do or don't happen, the reason they do or don't happen is because member states do or don't want to do them. And so in that sense, right, when we think about whether or not this is a fundamentally structural issue, it is at every single level, right? We have international problems that rely on the enforcement of member states. And when those member states decide to act, things happen. When they don't, things don't happen. The UN doesn't really replace state interests in the world. It reflects them. So in that sense, that is a fundamental structural issue of the the system we live in. Natalie, with regard to the UN's ability to have a meaningful impact in global conflicts, I hear both of you kind of talking about some of those structural challenges with the UN. But again, it is an organization of people. Does that mean that the UN can never be better than the people who are using it, who are running it? almost like any government, really, a government is a reflection of its people. I wonder if maybe that's part of the issue, that it is only a bully pulpit to the extent that someone chooses to preach from it and preach effectively. I I don't know if I would say it's a structural issue. I think I would describe it as a political issue in that sense, because I'm not sure that you could fix a structure that would somehow erase or even diminish considerably the political dimension of it. I think you can correct it a little bit. I think, you know, we tend to talk about the UN as this this thing. It's this world, you know, people worry about it being a world government. It is the sum of, of its member states, where I think it does have some room for maneuver is in that international civil service, a bit like you have the distinction and you know at a national level between the governments and the actual implementers. And I think what could be really interesting is looking at how the UN works more with other types of stakeholders, with civil society, with businesses, um, with cities, where actually you have a lot more um, alignment sometimes. Of, of interests around particular issues. And those are actually the, the on-the-ground implementers. I mean, if something, as, I think, as you said, if something gets agreed at the UN, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Someone needs to actually agree to it and take it forward. And I think it's really interesting. We have this narrative around, oh, the UN, somehow all these international agreements, they, they take away the control. No, it's, it's it, governments opt in <laughs> to the system. They opt in to the agreements. No one is forcing them to do anything. So I think that's one way that you can maybe change the structure to maybe dilute a little bit the hard national interest elements that come to play. But I think ultimately these are always, it's always down to politics. It's always a question of politics. That kind of gets to the question from our global listener, which I'd love to get to now. Omar al-Shogre is a Syrian refugee who addressed the UN Security Council to express his anger and to urge the UN to do more to help the Syrian people. He has a personal story to tell and a question for our guests. My name is Omar al-Shogre. I was forcibly disappeared by the Syrian regime, tortured and starved, till the day my mother managed to smuggle me out. My father and two brothers were killed in a massacre by the government as well. Today I work with the Syrian Emergency Task Force and I am a public speaker on trauma as a driving force and storytelling. The UN repeatedly fails to take preventive actions or hold perpetrators accountable for their crimes against humanity and against international law unless Western interests are seriously affected. For example, 
What happens in Syria has been addressed by doing almost the bare minimum, and the response in Gaza was no more than almost invisible actions. Compare that with the response to Ukraine, and you will see a significant difference. It makes me, of course, happy to see Ukraine being supported because their struggles are ours too. But it's hypocritical if the same support is not given in every case. So what actions should the UN take to address this hypocrisy? Omar, thank you for your question and thank you for sharing your personal story. Natalie, could I put Omar's question to you first? Yeah, I think one thing I'm almost mindful of, uh, of is when we have these sort of slightly abstract theoretical debates about the utility of the UN is it really doesn't matter to people on the ground. What matters is how we can get action through. And that's kind of why I sort of, I, I fall in the camp of, you know, let's not focus too much on reforming some structures or debating, you know, how many seats would be useful, but really look at what is working and how do we minimize the damage that is being done by the things that are not working. And it does unfortunately come down to politics, but I think that is one of the areas where the UN, through the General Assembly and through its agencies, does present a bit of a counterbalance to that horrible, you know, skew of double standards, which isn't really double standards by the UN. It's the fact that there is power and power lies in Western states. I mean, I think that's the problem. There's the military and economic power imbalance. And I think what the UN can do is firstly shine a light on that. I think you really saw that with the juxtaposition of the responses to Ukraine and Gaza, but also Syria, Yemen, the DC, all these other Sudan, all these other situations where atrocities are being committed and people are dying and you don't even sometimes they don't even make it onto the agenda of the of the of the council but you see that that spotlight being you know uh, shone on these situations through the general assembly where all countries can have a say you do see the human rights mechanisms of the UN trying to press forward they're documenting they're investigating they're providing that support on the ground or trying their best to do that so i think that really shows you know the limitations of the UN but also the role it can play in that situation it's not a good enough answer to people you know who've been in that situation such as omar it really isn't good enough and that's why i think you know instead of trying to redesign a perfect system that may or may not work Let's really focus in on the things that do. Anjali, what would you say to Omar? It's very hard to disagree with anything that Omar has said, right? And this is a problem over and over again we see in UN response to situations. Even if it's a reflection of political power um, in the world, the fact that some victims are more elevated, more addressed within the multilateral system is not just... Um, deeply unfair, it's deeply painful, and it has real consequences for real people in the world. I think another place we really need to think about this kind of deep hypocrisy in how the Security Council deals with different kinds of conflicts is when we think about the practical implications of reform. Because today, when we see, for instance, Russia and the U.S. trading barbs back and forth about the way they're using the Security Council to protect their allies, right, or to exonerate their own actions, what we see is that they're actually making the case for Security Council reform in real time, right? They are individually obstructing multilateral action on Ukraine, Syria, and Israel, and Palestine, right? 
The problem is that in the absence of being willing to do something to restrain their own actions in that chamber, they're delegitimizing the chamber. And they're encouraging people to walk away from it because they are both the key case for Security Council reform and the key obstacle to Security Council reform. And in that sense, the real fear, you know, the Biden administration, as late as September at the UN General Assembly, made the case for Security Council reform, pinning the case for Security Council reform to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We started out with a quotation from President Zelensky, right, pinning it to that and saying, like, look how deeply broken this body is. A single country can obstruct the will of every other state, right? Now, the Biden administration is willing to turn around and do the same thing, to obstruct multilateral action in Israel because the system works for doing what it needs to do for those great powers. Sometimes the UN is actively engaging in harmful practices, right? There are cases of peacekeepers violating human the human rights of the people who are in their care of sexual abuse and exploitation, right? There are stories of corruption and malfeasance in UN work. But if we if we set those aside and say there are bad actors in some cases, right, then we would say, even aside from that, when the UN is working well, it's a convenient scapegoat. Because if you have a bad problem and where the UN is present on the ground, it's because there is a bad problem that others have not been able to solve. The UN is a great to point and say, look at these people not doing anything, or look at these people not solving this problem that it would take 25 years and more political will than anyone has to actually solve. Natalie, the Blue Helmets, the UN peacekeepers as they're known, could I just ask you to respond to some of the concerns about them? There's been a reporting from groups like Human Rights Watch that have found that peacekeepers in Haiti, Somalia, the Central African Republic, have at least been accused of committing acts of sexual violence. Could you respond to some of the concerns about what the UN peacekeepers actually do on the ground, particularly those moments where they may seem to be less accountable or even committing atrocities themselves in some cases? I don't think I would disagree with anything that Anjali has said. These things have happened. There are accusations and there have been cases where they have been proved to be right, whether that's you know, corruption or, or sexual violence. or you know, it, it has happened. It is an ongoing issue. I don't think that lessens the value of peacekeeping as a whole. It means we need different safeguards and transparency. The UN needs to get much more comfortable be, with being held to account, quite frankly. Um, compensation to victims, all of these issues are things that need to be looked at seriously. But there is still a value of peacekeeping as a whole. We just need to do it much better. We have another question from Omar. Let's listen. As a human rights advocate, when I deliver my speeches and go to the Q&A sessions, there's always at least one young voice disappointed by the UN's failure in addressing conflicts and preventing massacres around the world. The UN has lost its credibility and the interest of many young people. So what should the UN do differently to regain trust, particularly among young people, and to repair its broken reputation? What would you say to Omar's second question, Anjali? I think young people today have a lot of cause to be disappointed in many of the institutions around them. I think the disappointment is deeply understandable. I think the important thing to know is first that reputations run two ways, right? It's not something you keep around in your pocket. It's something you build in a relationship with people. So part of what you can do to sort of rehabilitate 
the the institution with youth is something I think that the UN has tried to do in the last couple of years, which is basically to build youth movements into the core of the UN's work. We see this particularly in the climate arena, I think. Um, I think it's 2019, there's a youth climate movement that the Secretary General invites to the UN headquarters right ahead of the General Assembly. It's actually a way of trying to build pressure on member state governments to say, look, you don't have to listen to me standing up at the rostrum in the General Assembly saying we're all going to die, which is something Antonio Guterres has basically done every year for the last couple of years. You have to listen to the youth in your countries. They are here. They made the trip. They're here to say that you have a problem. You have a problem not dealing with these real problems in the world that we can only solve collectively. And in turn, that kind of building of that movement and you know, bringing it to the UN, putting the UN's legitimacy behind that movement for governments creates a sort of pressure mechanism where essentially the UN is saying to governments, your youth, your people, they're so dissatisfied with your inability to take action that they're going to come here. They're going to leave school every Friday, right? They're going to strike. They're going to do all of these things to show you that this world that we've built is not okay with them. So in that sense, I think part of what the UN can do is be attentive to the interests and the concerns of youth and to try and put them above the interests and concerns of governments in some places, right? You started out with the preamble to the UN Charter, we the peoples of the United Nations, right? The charter is issued in the name of the peoples. It's not issued in the name of the states of the United Nations. So in that sense, amplifying the voices of youth in that way and giving them a stage is important. Natalie, to carry that forward just a little bit in terms of what young people, many young people, at least the ones we hear from, are looking for, say they're looking for from their institutions. I wonder if part of the future of that is defining more clearly, and we've kind of alluded to this, what those institutions are for. So maybe I wonder if perhaps this is a moment to kind of rethink the pathways and just sort of accept that there are some moments for peacekeeping and some moments for war fighting, and that there may be a lane for each, especially considering that the UN can't be all things to all people. It, 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 it's dealing with organizations and nation states and various actors that don't all agree on everything, that don't all necessarily see everything the same way. And it's not always going to be the time for the UN. Um, look, I think the UN is sort of all things to all people. But I think part of the reason why people think that is because the UN is trying to be all things. It's doing too much. I do think, though, that it is a little bit you know, sad in a way that we... we we would convey to young people like Omar, you know, hey, just tone down your expectations. I think they've absolutely every right to be angry, to, to you know, to be concerned. Open Society did a, a big poll on attitudes towards democracy, rights, international institutions. And we found that, you know, yes, there is still quite a lot of support everywhere in the world. But what is really alarming is that support seems to drop the younger you go, which is very counterintuitive to what I would have thought. But when you drill down, it's not because they don't like these things in theory. They do. They just see them failing time and time again. I think the UN is trying now to integrate young people more into how it works, into its decision making. There's a youth office that's recently uh, recently been agreed. There will hopefully be the adoption of a declaration on future generations, which is exactly trying to do what Angela, you were saying, look beyond the narrow, immediate national interests to the types of problems the UN 
is and will need to address. But I think there's also here a role for national governments and for young people themselves. So for national governments, look at how few young people are in government, in parliament. Representation is super low. It's under 3% globally for for parliamentarians aged under 30. That is way, way, way too low. And you also look at young people. I think there is some responsibility, and I hate telling young people you need to do something because young people are actually doing so much already. But young people and citizens in general need to kick up more of a fuss about the way their governments think of the UN and the attention they pay to international organizations. These are are not issues that really um, move the needle in any significant way in an election or in the national debate. I think that would be a big wake-up call if young people and others just got to say, look, we see you, we call you out the way you behave here and in you know the way you acted on Ukraine, the way you acted on Syria, we see that. Every life is equally valuable. We need that kind of basic campaign and it's sad that we do, but that's the sort of thing I think that you know young people could take up and then take into the other forums. We've covered a lot of different ground in this debate and there's clearly some areas in which the two of you see the issue quite similarly. I do want to give you a moment to, to crystallize those before we go. Anjali, areas of agreement in terms of the two of you with where the UN is now and where it might be heading? I think we are both people who see the really vital role of the UN in the world today. And if, you know, we live in a world where, as Natalie said, conflicts are more and more interconnected huge global problems are more and more consequential in the lives of people day to day. And in that context, we really need a global institution that coordinates problem solving, that allows smaller states in particular to build coalitions in their own interests. I'm thinking, for example, of the small island nations and their advocacy about climate change, right? Things like that are only possible in the condition of a global institution like the UN. So the case for the UN, I think, has never been stronger. And in that sense, you know, we are dealing with the mismatch between an institution built to accommodate the fears and the problems of the last century being an institution that's even more important when we're faced with the problems and dynamics of this century. So in that way, I think we converge on the vital need to have a healthy, robust and transparent United Nations, where there is a more democratic set of practices within the institution in order to bring forth better outcomes for people worldwide. And Natalie, areas of common ground? I think what really resonated with me, Anjali, is this idea that, you know, you really need to look at transforming the UN from the perspective of the impact it needs to have, as opposed to how do we rearrange the deck chairs. And, you know, the reason we have, I think, this huge structural design, it's not a flaw, it's deliberate uh, with the the, the P5 and their privileges is because the system was designed to compensate for what was seen as the flaw with its predecessor, the League of Nations. And we still do that. We look at the last conflict, the last situation or the current set of problems. But by the time we get to agreement, they're already in the past. So we need to be more forward looking and anticipatory. And whatever we do needs to much be much more flexible. So let's not put in place another structure that is equally as rigid, given how fast things change. And I think being more realistic about the UN and what it needs to, you know, what it can achieve doesn't mean we have to 
tone down our ambition on what it should be doing. So I think we need to try and keep that aspiration alive, but just think about the players who contribute that in a much different way. Natalie Samara Singha, Global Advocacy Director at the Open Society Foundations. Natalie, appreciate you being part of this debate. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Anjali Dayal, political scientist at Fordham University. Thank you as well. Thank you very much. Doha Debates is a production of Qatar Foundation. Our podcast is produced by FP Studios and Doha Debates. Our producer is Julian Haida. Special thanks to James Wally. FP Studios Managing Director is Rob Sachs. Our executive producers are Katrine Dermody, Jafet Weeks, Amjad Atala, and Jigar Mehta. To learn more about Doha Debates, please head to Doha Debates, that's D-O-H-A debates.com, where you can find out more about our other podcasts, short films, upcoming events, and more. And please, if you like this podcast, please follow the program and write us a review. So until we meet again, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thanks for listening.